Healing can happen when people share their stories. Welcome to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. Discover true stories from those who were called to sit in the witness chair. Experience their journey through their legal process and beyond. This podcast brings to light the trauma and stress caused by testifying under oath and offers resources by talking with witnesses, key litigators, and mental wellness professionals to assist with different approaches one can utilize to prepare to take the stand and how to heal after the encounter. And now, here's your host, Juliet Huck. Good afternoon, everyone. Greetings. And welcome to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation on a kind of an overcast day today. And everybody kind of laughs that I always talk about the weather, but I also want to do that today because I want to dedicate this episode to my father. Uh, my dad's 10-year mm. anniversary of his death is today. So hard to believe. Talk about signs, which we're going to talk a lot about today. I really believe he made this happen. Um, I really believe he brought my guest and I together as a sign of my healing journey hopefully her healing journey, and wasn't always able to do that in his human suit, but he's been doing a lot on the other side. So uh, I just want to say thanks, Dad, and I know all of us siblings and family and mom and everybody misses you, so I uh, just want to throw that out there as a thank you. But I've been given a huge gift today. Oh my gosh, it's almost hard for me to put in words to describe my guest who's with me today. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start by saying I really feel she's a chosen spirit who has found great purpose in really deep pain. And I very seldom run into people like this, and I'm just so over the moon that I'm now energetically connected and I get to talk to her. She's a mother who lost her son, Jesse, in the Sandy Hook school shooting in 2012. And she also has a surviving son, JT, I can't wait to talk about. Uh, she's an activist, educator, co-founder of the nonprofit Jesse Lewis Choose Love Movement, which uh, their programs now are taught in like 10,000 schools, 50 states, 120 countries, serving over 3 million children annually. I just, oh gosh, that's just amazing. I can't wait to talk about that too. She's the author of a book that I have sucked up called Nurturing Healing Love, A Mother's Journey of Hope and Forgiveness. And her memoir is really a really, really intense look of a mother's love towards choosing love and forgiveness, which will continuing through our conversation today, a theme that's going to continue. So I'm overwhelmed with gratitude to welcome Scarlett Lewis. Welcome, Scarlett. Thank you for having me, Juliet. And I know that your dad is here listening and, and definitely guided us to be together today. There's no question about it. And I will be very upfront with you. I, I felt Jesse in my space yesterday. So it was very, very moving that uh, I had a moment or two that I was very anxious about some questions to ask you. And I got a message I think it's from him that said, if my mom can do it, you can do it. So it was just a really beautiful, uh, I felt like the two of them were in the room. It's, it's really, really, I got goosebumps. I, I love it so much. But you know, it's amazing. You said that it's your dad's 10 year anniversary, but it's also the 10 year anniversary of this Sandy Hook tragedy as well. I mean, it was on December 14th. So we're just beyond that. And uh, right. so it's 10 years for both of us. And I, I right. do believe that that's significant. Yeah, definitely. So our number is going to be 10 then, right, Scarlett? Yes, that's our number. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, you know, before we really get dive in too deeply, um, being this uh, sibling survivor, I had a brother that was shot when I was eight years old. And mm -hmm. I don't know how much uh, much about my story that, you know, I, 
I've been on a healing journey for a very, very long time, and I'm going to put my story out there later on down the road. But um, I just want to ask out of the box, how's JT? I, I, and when these things happen, my first gut reaction is to jump up out of my chair and say, I want to get my hands on those siblings. But, but how's JT doing today? He's doing very well. Thank you for asking. So it's 10 years later. He was 12 years old when Jesse was shot and killed. JT was in Spanish class hiding in a closet in lockdown during that time. So terrifying mm. for him in so many different ways. And in fact, um, he had asked me if he could come to the elementary school and wait and thinking, never thinking that anything like that could ever happen to me, even while I'm, I'm waiting where, where the parents were told to wait that, that didn't have kids that came out of the school uh, I, I still, you know, they, the first responders told us that they were, you know, searching for kids and they were hiding and they probably ran out into the woods. And I'm thinking, of course, Jesse led a small contingent of kids out to the woods. And, uh, so I, I never, I never considered that he was dead, especially the long list of people that were on this list of missing people. So mm -hmm. when JT asked me that, I said, sure, come, come to this chaotic place, the most chaotic thing that had ever happened in our lives. And we had been through a lot of chaos before then. And mm. uh, so he was with me the whole day. So it was really, really tough for a 12 year old. Um, yeah, I bet. And so it's, uh, it's 10 years later. He's 22. He's graduated from the University of Connecticut with a political oh, wow. science degree. Wow. And uh, he really found a lot of healing in writing and uh, met up with one of the original writers of the Family Guy series um, very soon after the tragedy. And he just loved Family Guy. So he started writing Family Guy scripts and he'd meet up with Chris and they would, he would mark them up oh. and JT would go back and redo them. So it was kind of this oh. uh, somewhat sarcastic, dry humor, but that humor really got JT through. And so he continues today to hone his craft. And that's really what he wants to be is a script writer. He's written a script about the book, Nurturing Healing Love, actually, and is trying to get it in made into mm. a movie, which is really fun. But I really think the turning point for JT was when a group of orphan genocide survivors reached mm. out to him via Skype um, and wanted to share their experience with him. And that was just a transformational for both of us. JT mm -hmm. had not gone back to school. It was in one within one month of the tragedy. Uh, he was very angry, as you can imagine. Uh, and yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, we were in a really difficult place because I didn't want him to go back to school. And uh, the school mm -hmm. was inadequate completely in, in helping us because there's no roadmap for this. Right. But we had these beautiful now young adults that 20 years prior had been through this horrific uh, genocide in Rwanda where over 1 million Tutsis were murdered by their neighboring Hutus, these people that they lived next to in and amongst. Wow. And these two now young adults had watched their families be macheted to death as well as their siblings mm. and attempted murder on them. They'd grown up in Red Cross camps. They had to... Uh, they had to practice something called reconciliation because there wasn't enough jail space for wow. for everyone involved in the massacres. So they um, they learned a lot about forgiveness and actively had to practice it and then lived in and amongst 
uh, who they called the killers. And, mm. uh, and, and they, so, so really immediately they had credibility. You know, when somebody comes in and says, you're going to be okay. You think in your mind, how do you know? You have no right. idea what we're right. going through. So few people right. can say that they have been in our shoes, unfortunately, more and more now, right. 10 years later, uh, but these people had credibility. And so they, they started off by telling JT and I that, we were going to be okay. Ma- mainly JT, he was going to be okay. And he was going to feel joy again. I was standing behind oh, him. And I thought, wow, <laughs> yeah. tell us that's how. And, yeah. uh, and they did. They oh, said that um, they started feeling gratitude while they were in the camps for the safety, uh, some, some food that they had and, and care and kindness and that strengthened them. And it does actually now I know through science to be able to consider forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they knew they said that if they didn't forgive, that they might go down the same path of anger, hatred, revenge, that what who, who they called the killers went down and they didn't want to oh. do that. So the other option was forgiveness. So they practiced forgiveness and then and then they were practicing compassion by, of course, reaching out and sharing their story with JT and it it changed him. He he came. Wow. I remember him coming into the living room after that, and uh, he said, "Mom, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to school tomorrow." And I said, "You are." I didn't even know how I felt about that. And wow. he said, "Yeah, those kids reached out to me in love." And I'm going to reach back out to them. I'm going to start selling bands, you know, the the rubber bands mm-hmm. that you write messages on around mm-hmm. your wrist. And I'm going to send them to college. And this was wow. amazing. And it was a huge lesson for me, too, in, in healing from tragedy. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. he went back to school, he would stay late and he would attend games and sit in the corner and sell his bands. He'd come to my fundraisers for the Choose Love Movement, sit in the corner with a friend oh. or two of his and sell his band for $2 a pop. And I within a couple it. of months, he had reached uh, the amount that he needed to announce to one of the orphan genocide survivors that he had enough money to send her to school for one year, but he made a commitment for four. And then he went on to send another one of those individuals to school and then built self-sustaining fish ponds for former children soldiers in uh, in oh, Uganda. JT. He built a, a culture operation. But the thing, but I mean the point of this story is that he was healing himself mm-hmm. by having the courage to step outside of his pain and help mm-hmm. someone else. And the amazing thing is that when you can do that, when you don't focus solely on your own suffering, uh, you help and heal yourself. And this is, you know, what I've researched in the last 10 years, what we include in the Choose Love Movement programming, but it's so powerful, a go, little yeah. bit counterintuitive because when you're in so much pain, yeah. you you want to go inside yourself, especially if you're a kid, you feel like you're alone and nobody else has ever felt this before. But when you have the courage to step outside of that pain and help somebody else, you help and heal yourself. And certainly JT is an amazing example of that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, traditional therapy did not work for him. uh, But, but service to others did, which is incredible. I love it. I love it. I'm just, I'm so happy that, um, I'm just so happy to hear that. I know as a kid for myself, talk about the loneliness. It was very lonely place, especially when you had parents that just, you know, were 
devastated and absolutely and i'm so happy to hear that he's he's had that because boy i wish you know it's just it, you know back in the day for us it was kids are resilient you're not gonna remember anything and all this right. kind of thing and i just know that you know the world's changed since then but well it hasn't changed since then what we know is that you carry forward those needs and that pain right. unless it's addressed and it impacts you for the rest of your life yeah yes yeah right and that that's the interesting part for me is that that's you know i, I am an adult that a lot of people didn't think it really affected, but man, it affected my entire life. And that's why uh, I'm so happy to hear that with him. So many of us are walking around with pain from our childhood mm -hmm. that we're not even aware of because right. we didn't have the skills and tools and awarenesses to face right. it. And we didn't have the modeling that showed us how to do that. That's why we're teaching that in the Choose Love movement. Right. I uh, know. I guess so. I, I, you're hitting on so many areas that I can't wait to talk about. We're going to talk about forgiveness. We're going to talk about signs. We're going to talk about the Choose Love movement. But I want to start in a little bit on, uh, you know, when I was reading your book, like I said, I just got so engulfed in it and I just showed you all the tabs I have because I just, um, it's on my own healing journey. It's just so inspiring to hear your story. But, you know, it, I just want to say with my whole heart, I, I cannot. 100% understand how you feel. That's why I, it's hard for me when people say, oh, I know how you feel. It's like, you really don't, like you just said, you know, there's, but I can only see it through my mother's grief and pain, my parents' grief and pain. And that's the only way I can understand, you know, kind of what you're going through, especially the things you wrote in the book and just the, you know, cause there was, there was five of us, six of us, and my mom had to get up every day. And you know, so, you know, in your book, you talked uh, about Dr. Laura Asher, um, I guess sounds like you were working with uh, at the very beginning stages of your healing. And she says, which I felt was a very interesting statement, grief is a sacred act and we must treat it as such. What, what does she mean by that? Yeah. Um, you know, it's so interesting because grief is a normal part of life. I've done a lot of mm -hmm. research on it going forward. And a lot of the reason is, you know, JT returning to school and the inadequate response and the f actually fearful response of not only his friends, but his teachers and the mm -hmm. mental health professionals. And, mm -hmm. and in reality, grief is a normal part of life. Um, we, we grieve so many things uh, and not just significant losses. We grieve the loss of relationships, the loss of friends, the loss of an opportunity or a future that we thought mm -hmm. we had. Almost everybody mm -hmm. was grieving through COVID, their, their freedom and, uh, and, and even major losses of family and friends through death. Um, but it's something that is sacred because we need to be present in it. It's it, like you said, Juliet, it's not something that you can brush under the rug and not deal with. It is a, a, a beautiful place really of, of mourning and of honoring and of remembering. And it was interesting for me in the aftermath, how many people didn't want to remember they they actually uh, became angry if they if if they you know there was something there that reminded them they were fearful of mm -hmm. their kids finding that. out about it and having mm -hmm. to um, address it with their kids. But in reality, it's all part of life, and it's yeah. something that we know we're going to have to face one time in our life, multiple times in our lives. And we know that our kids are too. And right. so it, it's really stunning to me that we don't 
offer lessons in schools. We don't talk about grief. We're Mm -hmm. uncomfortable with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and I can say this because before Jesse's murder, I was the person that would feel so uncomfortable and not know what to say and be so fearful Mm -hmm. that I probably wouldn't reach out and I would wait. And so I understand the fear in it. But Mm -hmm. now having gone through it, I understand that it is you know, when you have the courage to be present with someone in pain, that is a sacred experience. That is the closest, Mm -hmm. one of the closest times you will ever get to another human being. It's why we're here on earth to share Mm -hmm. experiences like that. And, uh, and so that's really what uh, Dr. Laura meant by that. I love it. I love it. Cause I, you know, it's, it's interesting how I feel like, you know, I, I still see grief on my mother, you know, I obviously, um, but I also think people, they, they run from it. Like they, they just want to, instead of addressing it, you know, for me addressing it in my family, it's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. And I don't know why people sometimes want to push it away. Although it's we painful. Have, I feel like my family is great. Yeah, it's painful. It's painful. It's uncomfortable. But it's, it's also healing, right? Yeah. It's healing. I mean, you know, it was funny because JT would come home every day after school and he'd slam his books down on the kitchen table and he'd say, no one cares about me. And I would say, oh, JT, I mean, I, I just got off a teacher conference, every te- one of your teachers and they're, you know, they're doing everything that they can for you. They're making accommodations. Like, I don't understand why you don't think they care. Mom, I'm telling you, they don't care. And I was just at my wits end. We even had a meeting with the teachers and we had poor JT was at the head of the table and they went around and and it was supposed to be like showing JT that they cared, but you know, it Mm -hmm. ended up being like, okay, you know, how's he doing in math? He's, I don't know. He's doing fine in math. Okay. How's he doing? I mean, it wasn't like it it didn't turn out the way we wanted. And um, someone who has become a dear friend of mine, the president of the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross foundation, who is the founder of grief therapy, uh, mm. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross herself, Diane Gray, I was telling her about this situation and she goes, oh, I know why he doesn't feel like anybody cares about him. I'm like, why? Because we have gone through, just jumped through hoops to try to get him to think somebody cares. And she said, because no one has had the courage to be present yes. with him in his yep. pain. So in other words, yep. no one mentioned Jesse's name. No yep. one ever even asked him how he was doing. Yep. And I asked them later, why? And they said, oh, because we were afraid that if we mm-hmm. asked him, we'd remind him about the tragedy. By the way, newsflash, you right. will never, ever have to remind us about the tragedy. We live with it every day, all day long. Right. Uh, we were afraid that if he said he wasn't okay, which I assured them he never would do, uh, that, you know, you know, boys, I'm fine, I'm fine, um, that they wouldn't have the the skills and tools needed to to help him, but it's not, it's not about skills and tools. It's about courage, the courage to approach. And it was a really huge lesson for me. And, uh, and so that's why I got together with Diane Gray and we created a healthy grieving program for choose love because it's so important. It's, it's a, it's a normal part of life. We shouldn't have this huge fear and, and secrecy and silence around it. Right. Right. That, that is so, you know, it, was, I, it takes me back to the very first day I went back to school after my brother's funeral and nobody said a word to me, right. like a word like right. at, at all. And except I sat in my 
in my chair uh, and my friend Vicky was ahead of me and she turned around and said, she goes just over her shoulder, like, are you okay? We're not allowed to say anything. And I'll never forget it. Cause I was like, wow, why isn't anybody talking? It almost like this, it almost like erased my brother. It was like this weirdness of, around it. So that's why I, I love how you're heading, you know, talking about grief head on and it's, it is uncomfortable, but it's also, you know, that's why this podcast, I want to hold space for people that can come and share their story have a safe place to talk about their grief, their pain going through the legal system. So, but I, I, the place that, you know, there's multiple places in your book where there's been a few, there was a few times I had to put the book down just because it just, they hit me so hard. And I just, I have some, I have obviously a lot of soft spots in my life, but mm-hmm. I'm working on those. But the first one was, um, wow, this just really was so powerful is that you had talked about a social worker that had also lost a son. And she said, I have to tell you, it doesn't get better. It mm-hmm. doesn't get easier. You're always going to have this pain. Mm-hmm. I heard that so much as a kid. Yeah. I, I, I just was like, and your reaction, I want you to talk about your reaction because the reaction of the book was like, I just blew me away. So talk about, can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I was so blown away myself to meet somebody that had a son murdered because I'd never met anybody before. And here was a a live person in front of me. So in other words, she survived. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. this was days after I was wondering if I was going to because the pain was so great. I honestly, I honestly was waiting for myself to dissolve. I I never wanted to kill myself, but I was I thought I was going to die from the pain. And so when I when I found out that she had lost her son, I I was just immediately riveted. And she said, yeah, I know exactly where you are, exactly what you're feeling. Wow. Imagine, you know, you feel like you're on an island and all of a sudden there's a person there who does know what you're feeling. And so I was eager for her to tell me what my future looked like. And she just started laying it out. And it was not something that I, I, it wasn't anything that I wanted for my future. And so I held out my hand to her and, and not in a, not in a disrespectful way, but kind of just saying, stop, please, yeah, please stop. Um, mm-hmm. That is your reality. <laughs> but I said, that's not going to be my reality. Uh, and, and I think it was, right in that space that I realized that there was no roadmap for this, that I was yeah. going to have to create it and that my life could be whatever I wanted it to be, that it was a choice. And, you oh. know, I had a, another, a few other moments uh, standing at my mom's window, you know, that, that stick in my mind, looking out at her bird feeder, which Jesse loved to do with her. And there was a red bird there that is, supposedly, you know, representative of a spirit. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I just thought, and I I remember the joy that Jesse had looking at birds and he just loved them. And he, he loved looking through binoculars and identifying them in bird books and everything. And I, Mm -hmm. I thought I am going to have joy. I have, and I have a 12 year old son and I want I don't want his life to be destroyed by this. I want him to go on and have a great life and have joy. I know that's what Jesse would have wanted. And so Mm -hmm. I know that I have to model this for him. He's looking to me to learn how to move through this. And Mm -hmm. I, you know, that awareness helped me be strong, really helped me put my best (sighs) foot forward. And you have to remember though, too, I was the only single parent, you know, along with Jesse's dad, we were single Mm. and uh, uh, not together at the time. So I was kind of like the mom and the dad. And Mm -hmm. so I, I am, 
and I always was. So I was kind of used to being the head of the household and the person that did take charge. And so I knew that it was on me and, and that I was going to create the future that we had and what do I want it to look like? And so I got to work to create it. Wow. That's just, I mean, I, I, I'm not kidding. I I didn't pick the book up for another day because I, like I said, I, I went through that so much. And when I read that from you, I was like, yeah, it's, it is choice. And we're going to talk about choice towards the end of our conversation, but I just, I find how, you know, how do you know, how do you not take on others' pain? How do you not, how do you just, you just make the choice and put the stake in the ground? Like that is so strong. Like that just come out of you like naturally. You know, I had, I, I had been reading books about personal empowerment and I had friends who were helping me with relationships and that type of thing and, and setting boundaries, which I wasn't very good at and being (laughs) present. Um, that was a really big one. Uh, I, Mm -hmm. I remember, you know, I, I had two kids and I worked full time as a single mom and I, I remember the day when I realized that I spent more time at work during the week than I did with my kids. And and the next day, I literally unplugged the TV and donated it to Goodwill and Mm. practiced being present with my kids. And honestly, that is the way to live your life with the fewest regrets, is to be Mm -hmm. present with the ones that you love. And so I did that. And when you do that, you you don't have that many regrets. I mean, think about it. At the end of your life, what are you going to regret? Not more money, not more things. You can't take that with you. You're going to regret not having said that you loved somebody mm-hmm. or or time time is your most precious asset right. and uh so you know i i practice being present and i really do think that practice of being present well it it helped me see so many signs that i may have just driven right past or you know even even on the last day walking jesse to the car to, to meet his dad who was driving him to school. And I turned around to give him a hug. You know, it's, you can imagine it's a flurry of activity. I'd gotten one kid off and I had to get ready for work. I was running a little bit late. It was cold. And I turned around to give Jesse a hug. And I noticed that he had written in the frost with the little, his little fingernail on the side of my car. I love you. And he had drawn hearts in all my windows. And so instead of just like, oh, that's so cute. Okay, bye. You know, I said, no, this is one of life's moments. You know, it's it's that practice of being present that enables you to do that. The practice of being present and elongating whatever is that micro moment of joy that you're in right then. And so I told, I told him, don't go anywhere. I'm going to run inside. I got my phone, which is now the camera, ran back outside, took a picture of him, took a close up of the message, gave him a real big hug, sent him off. And that was the last time that I ever saw him. Mm. It was the last Mm. picture ever taken of him. Mm. Well, you know, I, your uh, awareness, you know, that's one of the things that, um, I think so much. I know in my own journey too that you know I, I I've been a consultant for lawyers for years, and I had all these cases, and I didn't realize so many messages were coming to me through these cases until after I stopped and actually started becoming aware. And like you said, in the present moment, and they started building and adding, and so all of a sudden I was like, you know, it, it's a longer story that I'll tell you sometime, but it, it just 
you're right that it's being present, it's being quiet, it's being, you know, so it's such a gift you, know, you can give yourself and the, and the people hard, in your life. Good. I mean, awareness yeah. is the purest form of love. Being aware, uh, yes. being present, you know, and it's getting harder and harder with our cell mm-hmm. phones, with all the distractions. I mean, I I see parents, I I see parents like at the airport or something, and they'll be on their right. phone and a little kid will <laughs> yeah. come up and they will be pulling mm-hmm. on their leg, like mom, mom, trying to show them something, and they can't the parent can't rip their eyes away from the Mm-mm. cell phone. And what does that tell the child? This is more right. important to me than you are. I think we really have to be aware of that. And that's something that you would regret for sure. Yeah. yeah there's nothing on that cell phone. I mean, when you're on your cell phone, you're not living your life. Right. Yeah. That's right. That's so so true. And then because there's there's this, this one place and we'll, we're going to move on from this subject, but there's this one other thing that you talked about. You said, you know, that there's no other journey like unknown grief. There's, you know, and you go on to say, you have to reach the darkness to reach the other side. There's no way out of this cocoon of grief, but to break out. Like how, how did you break out? Yeah, I, I agree with that statement. I made it early on, um, but uh, I liken that, you know, I use, I use the word cocoon and I have a picture of a butterfly in a cocoon in my presentation now. And I say that, I, I remind the kids and big kids, by the way, because it's all mm-hmm. the same message mm-hmm. that the butterfly becomes beautiful because of the struggle, not despite the struggle. Mm. So the whole point of choose love is to have the courage to face the difficulty in your life because it's there for a reason. Mm-hmm. And, and this helps you give meaning to, to what happened, like instead of just saying, oh, my son was murdered and that's it, right? No, it was an incredible lesson. It, 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 it provided an incredible movement to the world and message of love. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have to be able to assign meaning. And so that's how you, you do that through... Mm-hmm. Uh, facing whatever difficulty it is and and moving through it. And remember, the butterfly is beautiful because of the struggle, not despite it. I mean, and, you know, there's lots of uh, illustrations of this, but the lotus flower, I was in India mm-hmm. recently working in schools there and we passed a pond with all of these lotuses. And one of the um, people that, uh, one of the hosts, while we were there, we we're describing how lotuses are beautiful because of the mud uh, that they mm-hmm. are, uh, they grow in and that then they, they come down every night into the water and clean themselves. And then they come up fresh every morning. It was mm. so beautiful. But I think we have to remind that that is part of life. Everyone is connected by the want and need to love and be loved, but we all feel pain physically, Mm -hmm. mentally, emotionally. It's part of the human existence. We're going to experience loss. And it's very helpful when we have some skills, tools, and awarenesses to be able to do that. Yeah, that's just so powerful. My goodness, goodness, goodness. Um, Wow. Um, Some things I don't even know what to say. It's just, you're so powerful. It's so amazing. But I, I do want to move on to a, another subject that, you know, 
a little bit tough, but this podcast is really talks about two of people having the courage to go to trial. And, you know, not only did you walk this painful journey, painful, painful journey, and then you needed to bear this spreading of conspiracy theories that Sandy Hook was a hoax mm-hmm. and, you know, the families and all the, you know, I mean, number one, I'm, I'm, I just want to say I'm sorry for such horrible human behavior. I, I just, it, it breaks my heart that anyone would even consider not not consider a family or even have the mindset of this. But I, I want to ask you about what what gave you the courage to come forward to sue Alex Jones? Like, where did that start? That's a really good question because that was the hardest thing that I've had to do in the last 10 years, other than losing mm. Jesse. And, you know, if you look at my position, I have literally dedicated my life to trying to keep kids safe in schools and advocating for their health and well-being. Mm-hmm. I do this every day, all day long. I literally could say 24-7 and my family would agree. Uh, I, I think about it at night. <laughs> I get up and write notes. I mean, I research this. Um, I work in prisons. I, I So I look at both sides of the spectrum. I And And here is a man saying that I am not only, you know, is like completely negating what I, what I do, uh, but he's saying that there was not a tragedy, that my son never existed and that, you know, Sandy Hook was a hoax. I am an actress hired by I don't know, dark forces to take mm. away people's guns. And I've never made a comment about guns. You know, uh, it's just, it was so ridiculous and it wasn't stopping and the harassment wasn't stopping. And so it's at, 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 at some point, you know, I think first you, you hope that with silence, um, the ridiculousness mm-hmm. just stops. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't even mind the fact that he was on, he was on his show day one questioning Sandy Hook and I I think that you know I think it is it is a hard truth yes. that in America our children run a risk however small of getting slaughtered in their classroom I know. And they do, and they do it to themselves. They they kill each other. They're killing themselves and each other at unprecedented mm. rates. That's a really hard truth. So I think that Alex Jones came out and gave an alternate, easier truth to digest right. that hey, there right. was never any kids. There was never any tragedy. These are just uh. really bad people trying to take advantage of you. Oh, great! Uh, a mm. a uh, a place to direct our anger because we've got so much of it. Let's just do that. So I think that, you know, the the problem, uh, there's so many problems with that, but the problem with that is that I felt like it took away from what I was trying to do. You're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem. Mm-hmm. And he's definitely right. not part of the solution of trying to keep our kids safe. And I think yeah. that that should be the priority of our nation. And it's just boggles my mind that it's not even to this right. day. Uh, right. But that's, that is, that is how I got the courage. And I did get the courage by thinking about Jesse's courage. Jesse stood up and faced his shooter and saved nine of his classmates lives before mm. losing his own little six-year-old Jesse, you know, standing in front of his teacher and uh, no child should ever be in that mm. position. 
And I thought, wow, if, if Jesse during his final moments could stand up to a shooter and, yeah. you know, there are lots of different things that are surmised about the last few moments of what he did, but they're all just absolutely incredibly courageous for, for, mm -hmm. for any human being, let alone a six-year-old. If he could yeah. do that during his final moments, I can, I can hold Alex Jones accountable and I can right. stand up for what's right and the truth, you know, and, and to be honest, there was, there's lots of shifting from truth I'm seeing in mm -hmm. our society and in reporting. And it's quite alarming to me. Mm -hmm. um, truth is so important and we need to maintain it. And so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I was really hoping that this would help Alex Jones business actually, because uh, if he could just focus <laughs> on the truth, I don't even mind somebody that questions something. I think it's right. good to question and to think critically, but you cannot lie about something. And so for anyone who's out there saying that this is about the First Amendment and freedom of speech, it's not. Uh, I believe in the First Amendment. It's about it's about lying about someone right. with the intention to harm. Right. Intention to harm. That's that's the big one. But I want to step back just a second. You said I, I keep hearing yesterday's message from Jesse was oh, courage because okay. he's giving me courage yesterday. And I just yeah. felt like his the courage is the theme. So I'm, I'm saying, yes, yes. We're, we're hearing you. We're hearing you. We're going to take a break here. This concludes part one of my interview with Scarlett. Please join me next week to resume our part two discussion. For more information for the Jesse Lewis Choose Love Movement, please go to legacy.chooselovemovement.org and you can find Scarlett's amazing book, Nurturing Healing Love, wherever books are sold. Don't forget, go out there and spread some love. Thanks for listening to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. If you want to share your experience as a witness, please forward your information to info at juliethuck.com. For more information on Juliet's 30-year career in the courtroom, visit us at juliethuck.com. There you can find your books, The Equation of Persuasion, and 50 Ways to Get Your Way, available on Amazon. Remember to follow and subscribe to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation wherever you listen to podcasts. The content, opinions, and information shared by the hosts and guests on this podcast are not to be considered professional legal advice or therapeutic counseling. If you need assistance, consult with a licensed attorney or therapist if you are appearing as a witness, experiencing emotional trauma, or are involved in any sensitive legal matters. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Thank you.